So Nick, we ended our last episode with an invitation to the audience to answer these four questions. What are you missing from your own professional development? If you're white, what do you need to know about your colleague who's an educator of color in the classroom in order to best support them in their journey? If you're an educator of color, what organizational supports do you need to feel empowered in this work? And the last question was, for everyone, reimagine your PD days. What structures do you need? What supports can you advocate for? How can you communicate your needs as an individual and as a collective to ensure these opportunities are high quality, relevant, timely, and culturally sustaining? And you know what? We got a couple of answers. So I appreciate that. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So in no particular order, you know, we got a couple and one said, and I quote, I'm missing more training and time to process how to best support the intersections of identities and children with special needs. Mm-hmm. Another one was like, I need to deepen my learning around indigenous sovereignty mm-hmm. and non-Western philosophies on teaching. Another one said, honestly, we don't make room for people of color and their experience. And as a program leader, I need to be better at uplifting their voices. And as one of you said in your earlier podcast, I need to be better at listening, believing, and interrupting microaggressions. And then, of course, someone said, thank you for your time and thoughtfulness in <laughs> delivering these napcasts. So my question to you, Nick, is what are your thoughts? Wow. Those, you know, those are very poignant um, responses and some that are, I mean, just off the cuff are kind of tricky to, to talk to. But the first thing that stands out to me is this concept of time. And yeah, it's always a hard thing, I think, to carve out time. And a lot, and I know you and I do it. A lot of times we have to do things outside of our quote unquote work hours. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's just going to be the construct of, of teaching for a good while until, you know, systems are in place that really support us to have things like professional development. Um, there's still that DIY ethos to really mm-hmm. um, carve out your time. Cause you know, we're in it to win it for this thing with children and society as a whole. Um, and I think first, one of the first steps too, is to, to think about what you're interested in and, and so I'm thinking about the the indigenous sovereignty piece that you talked uh, mentioned, and you know, reach out to people. I mean, First Nations people were all over this nation, all over this country, and there's going to also have to be a little bit of grace because some of those First Nations people or people who identify as First Nations might look white, mm-hmm. and and that's you're just going to have to really give them some grace and really try to glean what you can from them and learn their story. Because some of the times those people do have a story of their from their grandmothers or grandfathers that had been passed down. Um, and I think really just to to just be open to listening to everyone's story. I, I think that's one of the biggest key for maybe all these all these comments is to find a space, a capacity of openness. All right, y'all. So everyone knows that childcare is essential. We're some of the most influential people out there. Yet, we are often overworked and underpaid. So how can you work full time, have hobbies, show your friends and family love, self-care, 
and also fine tune your skills and grow more in depth, that's where we come in. These NAPCAST 25, 30 minute segments are designed to help you learn on the go, hear another perspective, spark debate, (laughs) heck, even agree with us, but honestly remind you that you're not alone. We live in a complex world, so allow us to challenge your perspective. So are your headphones in? Did you turn the volume up? All right now, good. Let's get it. Welcome to NAPCAST, a podcast produced by Hilltop Children's Center in Seattle, Washington, on the traditional lands of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish people. Welcome back to episode five. I'm with your co-host with the smoothest voice in podcasts, Mike Brown, pronouns are he, him, and... I'm Nick Taronis with the second smoothest voice in podcast land, (laughs) (laughs) pronouns he, him. Mm -hmm. So we started today's episode where we left off at the end of our last one. So I'm going to say definitely go check that out at www.hilltopcc backslash institute backslash napcast. And I want to build off of that. More specifically, build off of something you said that really stuck with me, Nick, during during the episode, as well as things said in between. And that's honoring children and families, honoring their creativity, their expertise, their realities, their abilities. So today, I want to focus on just that, the image of the child, of course, if that's all right with you. Oh, yeah. Definitely. You know, that's uh, that's at the heart of our school's philosophy and pedagogy, Reggio Emilia. And it's what I believe in as an educator and something that has really taken deep root into my heart and soul. So far away, Mike. All right. Perfect. Perfect. So I'm going to start off with an exercise, right? And I want everyone listening or if you're reading this transcript to just pause for a second and take about five minutes to reflect on this as well. So let's look back on when we were children and reflect on what it meant for us to experience childhood. So how old were you? Where were you? Think of the smells, take in the sights. What were in your hands? Think back to your childhood. Was it a fond memory? Are you thinking about one moment or did you think about your entire childhood? For me, I have this image, right, of being in the bingo lounge with my father. And I had the greasy pizza on my tongue. I had the sounds of grumpy older people losing probably hundreds of dollars, <laughs> you know, the sticky shoes from beer being spilled. You know, I didn't have the greatest of childhoods. We didn't live in a great neighborhood. We were a working class family who could barely make ends meet. I was constantly in trouble. And the lights, we didn't know if the lights would be on or off. But those moments in the bingo hall with my father continuously brings me joy. It represented community for me, an extended family, the outpour of love, the value of hard work. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, you're playing bingo. But nah, we weren't playing bingo. We were working so we can get a discount on my tuition. But it was, was it, it was the fact that those adults, right, have put trust in me to carry out some task 
And, and you know, if you've ever been to Bingo, you know how feisty people can get. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it was those folks having trust in me that really shaped my childhood. So now it's your turn. Think aloud. Jot down a couple of words, paint, maybe even draw an image. Whatever you do, just live in that moment for a minute. Now I invite you to take five minutes just to pause and reflect on that. Now, hold on to that thought, that feeling for the rest of this episode. That's a framework we'll be operating out of today. So Nick, when I think about childhood, I think about those small, but a handful of joy, joyful moments, right? That were, weren't a lot, but they were powerful. So in your work with toddlers, what do you mean by image of the child? Yeah, and you know, yeah, thanks for sharing that memory, Mike. And you kind of touched on it right there where in your childhood, you have these fond memories of being with your father and your family at bingo night and, and the and those senses that, that mm. you know, because memory carries a lot of sense, oh, a yeah. lot of senses in it, and or at least the strongest of memories, um, for good or bad. And mm. and one thing that stuck out to me when you were saying or giving us that memory was that you were being entrusted with a task, mm. right? Now, and I hear you talking about two things here, Mike, which are inseparable and reciprocal. To me, childhood is the result of this concept image of the child. Uh, the experience we have as children are shaped by the way adults in our lives view us. And I got to call out for better or worse in some cases, you know, there are children out there that mold their own child childhoods. In Reggio Emilia practice, uh, the pedagogy we use here to guide us at Hilltop, the image of the child is what it states. How do we view children? Okay. And in turn... This view or image will influence how we treat them and curate their environments in the educational ways, uh, settings and even at home. And it's a strength-based model that asserts that children come to us, adults, educators, and caregivers, full of potential and capability with the deep capacity to critically think and contribute as citizens to carry out tasks. Mm -hmm. um, and I touched on this a bit in episode two, the Te Vahiki. Yeah, absolutely. Longtime re uh, Reggio educator Carlina Rinaldi states, uh, the child is a producer of culture, values, and rights, competent in their learning and competent in communicating with all the hundred languages. An image of the child encourages adults to value children's thinking and to authentically make it visible to them and others. And the hundred language concept tells us that children have a hundred and more ways of expressing and communicating their learning their knowledge, and their feelings. And I feel when provided with the appropriate materials by the adults in their lives, children can show us their complex and nuanced thinking. Um, I should also call out that this concept of image, image of the child requires continuous dialogue and reflection to keep this principle in mind and in our, in, in our practice with play and play in children. And, you know, thinking about this right now is, it's sort of like that constant dialogue for myself. And it's a nice refresher to go through these words. Hmm. You know, it, it definitely sounds like it takes a, it, it takes a tremendous amount of reflection in this work to be able to hold this high image of the child. Right. And 
I always laugh because, you know, when, when I mention reflective practice, when I'm out in the community and I'm talking about it, people look at me funny. You know, cause sometimes it can sound fluffy. Yeah. But it's, it's something that honestly makes a difference when you're trying to build um, children's sense of citizenship. Man, and another crucial part of this work, from what I'm hearing, is that you have to come with a certain amount of appreciation, right? An appreciation of children's multiple learning styles, of how they understand and how they see the world, an appreciation of their interests about a particular topic. And you partly get this through um, being keen observers of children's work, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But what about other attributes or skills? What other attributes or skills are needed to uphold a high image of the child? Yeah, well, and I'm glad you put it out there about it being fluffy because I'm going (laughs) to go there. (laughs) And, you know, because I think that that's something that is severely lacking in education. Mm. Um, And and people familiar with the Reggio pedagogy, this might sound familiar. And for those hearing it for the first time, the fluffy things that I'm going to refer to, some might refer to as soft skills, the intangibles that I I think take a good amount of time, self-reflection and dialogue with others to really begin to see them work. So we all have them. We all practice them. We're just calling it differently. Yeah. And and I think sometimes maybe, I think you're right in the sense that we all have them. Mm-hmm. Maybe we don't always, everybody is not always practicing them. Gotcha. So I think, you know, yeah, there's that first step of recognizing them and acknowledging them that they're there within the self, but you got to put it to practice. Um, and so I'm going to put on the philosopher hat here once again and, <laughs> and pull from Lors Malaguzzi, the, uh, the spearhead in Reggio Emilia's pedagogy way back in the day. Um, be comfortable with the unknown. And, you know, right now this is so true as we're living through the COVID-19 and we're all in this unknown, certain and complex times. Um, but considering this, and in a general sense, schools shouldn't reflect and function as if children are predictable. Life certainly isn't. And children show us that sitting without an answer is okay. And living in spontaneity is something to be valued. And there's no need to rush ourselves or or the child for the sake of quote-unquote learning. Uh, two, become totally involved and enjoy relationships. Mike, when you see children at the center and you're walking welcoming them into the school, what do their relationships look like? What do they do? Oh, man, what do they do? <laughs> how, do how do you see them together? Man, it seems like they're always playing. Yeah, you're right, man. They're, they're playing. So get back to play, grown-ups. You know, especially in those tough moments when you're feeling like you're just managing behavior. Get on the ground with them and just play. and Be with them. And that's how you can really be with children is just playing. Mm-hmm. A child will need to see us as a resourceful friend. Like you just pointed out, you know, the friends play together. Mm-hmm. I think reshaping and reconstituting our relationship with children from authority to this sort of concept. And you'll start seeing that there are palpable results that will emerge. Uh, three, consider each child's reality. And especially, you know, um, when, 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 you're, when you're working and playing with uh, children, children of color. What does developmental theory and science tell us about a child? Mm-hmm. What are the cultural influence that influences that children bring with them each day as they enter school? How do the adults' perceptions and influences clash or complement with the child's? 
And we all bring our centers. We all bring to our centers pieces of our lives. We never come isolated. Our experiences and elements of the world we live in come with us each and every day. Uh, fourth, wait, action without action. Uh, I call this the Wu Wei. And it means action without action or also described as effortless action. And it's a concept I picked up from um, like a decade of practicing Kung Fu tied in with uh, Taoist principles. Uh, oftentimes, we educators, including the legal guardians of children, want to impart lessons or experiences to teach children. Yet if we carry a strong image of the child, we will see that the best thing we can do is nothing. And this is the Wu Wei with children. It encourage us to, encourages us to wait and activate children to develop the will and the desire to be authors of their own learning. And this is why we need to advocate against checkboxes and standardized tests, as well as cookie-cutter assessments and strive for approaches that are more holistic and honor the process of childhood and human development in general. And ones that involve, you know, what is what did you call it, a death metal? Right. So we yeah. got Kung Fu, Death Metal. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, so considering these moments, you know, at times when being with children can strengthen our skills um, that you were asking about and these soft skills of observation to notice the nuances that children present and we become keen observers, uh, able to co-research and co-construct learning with children. So I went into this and I just thought of it as... You know, you have to be keen observers. Well, I'm, I'm walking out of this question with four things. So you're taking, so by taking kind of this quadruple role of keen observers, um, co-constructors, co-researchers, and from what I'm gathering is you're active participants in children's learners, mm-hmm. right? That's the fourth one. Yeah. You have a better appreciation and sense of the child. And it sounds like a cyclical pattern. So Let's complete the cycle, right? What have you learned from children over, you've been in the game for 14 years, right? Yeah, coming up. Yeah. So over the last 14 years, what have you learned from the children, which supports this view that children are, I believe you said, confident, capable, uh, and competent citizens, Mm -hmm. it has made you a more effective ECE professional? Yeah. Well, I... You know, the, the capacities that children carry with them and the potential for those capacities to be deepened with authentic, age-appropriate experiences. Um, across the age ex- spectrum, I believe children are capable of achieving great depths of empathy, reflection, mm-hmm. including of the self, resiliency, insightful observations, uh, abilities of sitting with complexity, and many more that I can't even think of right now. Yeah. Um, they've also taught me the great value of being authentic to both the self and with others. I think we talked about yeah. that in the death metal part, right? Episode two, go check yeah. it out. <laughs> <laughs> with the children that I've, I, that I've experienced through my career, many just come as they are, ready to express their full selves in a way straightforward and real. And in our exchanges together, they've taught me that they can sense authenticity, especially when it's talking about a complex and somewhat heavy issue that, you know, or issues that permeate our world. But most importantly, they've reminded me the value of and importance of play. I think a lot of us adults have forgot the benefits of just being silly 
having fun, be unafraid, and really just be recklessly joyful. Man, less stress as well. <laughs> so I can imagine that it might take years to, to truly shift your perspective to view children in this light, in this way. I mean, after all, after all, we come from a culture which has a deficit lens on damn near everything, including children, especially our black and brown kiddos, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking of a lot of programs who might have that predetermined or descriptive curriculum and how they might be able to adopt this philosophy or at least parts of it into their early childhood educational settings. So my question is about how can like centers and programs begin to co-construct the image of the child framework into everything like policies, interactions, philosophy, your family engagement or your family partnerships, your community outreach, et cetera? Yeah, it's a good question, Mike. And, you know, I think the first thing that I think about are, you know, that like you and I were afforded to be in this sort of position to be able to think at this, um, and, and no disregard to anybody, but at, at this level of where we have the time and space to be able to, to have these conversations mm-hmm. and think, you know, I think that's the accessibility piece, right? For sure. And, and so when we're considering um, communities and, and centers that are using uh, scripted curriculums and predetermined uh, curriculums, I, to me, we're, we're talking about a degree that's a reflection of Maslow's hierarchy of needs are you familiar with that? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, so for for those of you out there, it's you know at the very tip top of the of this pyramid, if you when you think about it, is is self actualization and really that time and space to be able to think about mm-hmm. the image of the child. And so communities, oftentimes communities of color, are operating at the bottom levels of the pyramid where they're still worrying about clean getting clean water and food, where they're going to sleep and all the sort of um, socioeconomic stressors and pressures that come along, it's, this is kind of an unfair question to address with them. And if there's a constant you know, struggle to get these, it's, they're not going to be trying to worry, uh, worry too much about, about this topic. Yeah. Um, and I think this is where predetermined curriculums that you mentioned come into play. There's a funding in using these, many of these curriculums, and they're often backed at the policy making level. And from knowing other educators who use those, it can be quite daunting to steer off course from the script mm-hmm. or to reinterpret the script. And more times than not, those kinds of curriculas are written by academics with the lens of achieving results of what, you know, they think is appropriate for children, for ch- child outcomes. Yeah. And the way they're written usually don't consider the communities that are implementing them. Now, as negative Nikki as that sounds, educators are artists and carry with them a creative, creative ways to honor children and families that they know in their communities. So keeping this in mind, I would encourage centers and educators to, one, shop around different pedagogies and philosophies. See what inspires you, what jives with your values, how you imagine your time with children and families, you know, what really speaks to your heart. Two, take a deep dive into the script you may have and see where there may be flexibility. Sometimes someone with an academic lens is needed to help sift through all that academic hubbub and jargon. 
And oftentimes there is uh, flexibility in these um, scripted curriculums. It's just kind of hard and daunting to really see sometimes. Uh, most, I think most importantly is create buy-in in your community of practice. Uh, at being in your center with educators is a community and the school is a living organism fed and sustained through uh, shared vision and values and philosophy. And this takes time and it's ever evolving. As you know, like Hilltop is still, and you, and you're helping us like really st uh, steer in the direction of where we want to in terms of social justice teaching. Mm. Um, but having a basic level of buy-in is key for the tiniest bit of momentum network. You know, I encourage everybody to get out there, especially with the technology platforms that are out there, you know, just get out there and network these days, I think we have it good to be able to partner with other schools and communities. So I'd strongly advise people who are looking for a change to reach out to schools and educators. Mm -hmm. Stop living in our silos. We are very siloed as an industry. This is true. Yeah, we've got to share the wealth, you know, and the wealth is our knowledge and experience. Uh, sometimes these connections have significant impacts on how our teaching and thinking evolve. Uh, in the past several years, I've encouraged myself and teaching team and this is something I think is a tangible takeaway for those listening out there. Mm -hmm. um, tape up pictures of yourselves as a child, specifically the age group that you work with. For me, that's toddlers. And I encourage all – what I'm saying is like I, I put up a picture of my toddler self up in my classroom. Okay. And, and I make sure that it's where I'm going to be looking every day. And the idea is to remind yourself that you were a child once too with the drive to play and to explore. So that's where we were calling on what I said earlier about remember and carry that framework throughout the rest of this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, it, and it's really a great way to just constantly reflect through many situations, especially those tough situations. How would I have wanted to be my child self to have been treated? Mm -hmm. You know, If you had yourself for a teacher, how would you want to be approached? <laughs> I... Uh... I'm glad you ended off with some positive because at first I was like, oh man, this is, <laughs> this is getting a little negative, man. <laughs> and I know these, I, I know that you're saying these are encouragements and I appreciate that. And um, yeah, thanks for your insight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also, these really sound like questions, programs, and should be asking themselves each year before the new set of children comes on. And I'm, I'm sure periodically, whether that's at your professional development days or in-service days or whatever it's called. Um, but these really do sound like self-reflection questions and activities about their own childhood, about, you know, your, your own values, about your own program and things they, that should, that you should be asking yourself to ensure that you're sparking joy in everything you do and everything you're doing. So I guess just ask yourself listeners, are your programs sparking joy? We'll be right back. Hilltop Children's Center is a high-quality preschool, after-school program, and professional development institute of early learning and inquiry, serving the Seattle community since 1971. Together, we are working with the next generation of inventors, leaders, thinkers, artists, and social activists. For more information on our professional development and community outreach, including workshops, presentations, blogs, coaching and consulting, and of course, this NAPCAST, please visit 
www.hilltopcc.org. Our buddy, John Nimmo, a professor at Portland State University in Oregon, and a good friend of ours at Hilltop, was part of a documentary called The Voices of Children. And I've seen it a couple of times. It's maybe only about 30 minutes, um, about a 30-minute documentary. But what I got from it is that children have a right, a right to a good school, good environments, responsive educators, um, engaging activities. This is the right of all children. And when we hold a high image of the child, we honor the inalienable rights. So to you, Nick, what are children's rights? Hmm. Well, the first thing that pops in my head, Mike, is at an age-appropriate level, children's rights are human rights. Mm-hmm. Let me break it down like this. Children have a right to a good school, one that is reflective of their community and responsive to their community and encourages them and encourages them to consider other communities, you know, to help children uh, think beyond their lens. Mm. Uh, children have a right to quality adults, like you kind of pointed out there. These are the people who see themselves as resource manager rather than behavior managers. Children who are children are rich in resources and in, in of creating and thinking and feeling, and those are the resources that quality adults are able to cultivate out of them. Children have the right to imagine. Their observations and thoughts about the world around them are astute and meaningful. They bring a raw and natural way of seeing the world as well as creating worlds. Children also have the right to autonomy. Sometimes we adults get wrapped up in passing down air quotes life skills. And surely these skills are helpful, but usually a child lets us know when they're ready for them. And I'm thinking about these things of the toddler lens, like sleeping, eating, toileting, all that. Uh, in their autonomy, children are exercising and experimenting with their sense of self. Mm. So it's, it's clear you have, you know, these rights that you just mentioned, you believe all children should have. I guess what are actions in your, what are actions in your daily routines that honors these rights? Mm. You know, I mean, it comes up, in every moment in the classroom and, and always reminding myself that like every behavior is a call is a need mm-hmm. and it isn't just something to manage, right? What are, what's the resource that the child is showing me that I can sort of cultivate here. So I ask myself, there are three things I usually try to ask myself depending on the situation. Like one, what's really important here or in this moment. I remember this one time at the beginning of the year, two uh, pre-verbal toddlers I had, they kind of, I saw them, they just wandered off into our studio, you know, which is kind of what some people might say is quote unquote out of sight, (laughs) but I knew where they were going. And so my licensors are listening. (laughs) So, I mean, so I brought myself to where they were in sight. Good save. And I also found myself wanting to be like, Hey, you guys can't be in the studio, blah, blah, blah. What do you got to do? And going through the whole mm-hmm. thing, right. Mm-hmm. To impart the lesson of checking in with the teacher and blah, 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 blah. But before I did that, these two pre-verbal children were laughing and slamming, um, the, uh, I guess their leaves of a table, you know, those parts of the table that can fold down. Yeah. Yeah. And so they were just like picking, like unfolding it and folding it back down hmm. on either ends of each other. And, it was loud. I knew the table can take it. And they were just 
like laughing with each other. They were developing a special bond and a relationship that was being held in this really rambunctious, not rambunctious, but raucous sort of moment. And so was it important for me to impart the lesson of checking in with the teacher or was it important that they were developing this relationship? Mm. High image of the child. Mm -hmm. Two, how can I say yes and? Oh, boy. <laughs> and, you know, this this I, I, this can be stretched out into all kinds of things. Um, and I guess what I'm thinking about now is like when toddlers are bringing up questions about anatomy or skin color or, or ability and really getting them to 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 just think for themselves and to let them know that, hey, yeah, you you obviously have some wonderment or some idea you want to talk about. So, yes. And what else do you know about this? Or mm. what else can we what else do you think about this? kind of thing? Here's what I know about this. Um, you know, and it can come into the uh, come in. It can come into play like when when children are constantly calling trucks, for example. Hey, do you see that truck? He is driving down the street or he that dump truck basically giving this truck a gender. Yeah. I'd be like, yes, it is a truck. And I'm noticing that you're calling it a he. How do we know it's a he? Mm. And kind of, you know, it, so it's just kind of always seeing how I can say yes and rather than just being like, mm, actually, it's not this, right? Um, and then three sort of uh, balancing expectation and choice. Um, and again, I'm thinking of a toddler task here, potty training. <laughs> If the expectation that is that the child should try to learn to uh, try the toilet, and um, well, how? What's the choice I can give them of how to get there? Um, do they want me to fly them? Are they going to hop there? Do they want to read a book? So I try to make sure that there's more choice that the child has, uh, rather that outweighs my expectation. But the expectation will generally happen. Hmm. That's really interesting. Definitely food for thought. So another question I'm, that, that came up as you were speaking is, how are you demonstrating to the children that we, that we the adults, really believe these points of view are true? Hmm. I think with just real talk, you know? I mean, how, do, how have you seen it around the center? Right, that's a question for me? Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> um, I mentioned this earlier. It's, it's definitely through play by allowing long stretches of periods where they can play uninterrupted and can dive deep into their imagination. You know, you start to see children processing, developing, growing, and making important contributions really to the enhancement of their human experience through this. Mm, yeah. And I think with the support of educators and adults by anything from like encouraging um, the aesthetic representation of children's ways of knowing, you know, their multiple, their, their funds of knowledge by intentionally introducing um, interactive activities, you know, with the keyword intentionally. I think by introducing that intentionally you you allow the children to have the opportunity to take the lead and make it their own. And by then giving them that 
sense of autonomy and time to have ownership of their spaces they interact with are all part of how we're helping children create healthy relationships with each other, with the natural environment, um, with the world, and really is how we honor their truths, their knowledge, and their culture. Yeah. Yeah, I love that, Mike. I mean, and even in the you know short amount of time that you've been here, that, that intentionality, mm-hmm. I think, obviously, is is what is, you're able to just like speak on that. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so in, in what ways are you making these statements visible to others and advocating for the strong image of the child? Again, I think, yeah, it comes down to that intentionality. What am I going to do with these experiences? Um, you know, I think for all humans, experiences are something to reflect on. And the way we do that is, you know, through our use of documentation. I really try to emphasize the importance of whatever it is I'm capturing of children's play and experience. Usually this is turning something stressful into a silver lining. Again, with toddlers, at a certain point, they're going to protest their biological needs, like sleeping and toileting. (laughs) Uh, The silver lining behind this, as annoying and contentious as it can be, is that they're developing a stronger sense of self. And they're finding power and the ability to say, no, I will not stand for this anymore. Now, if we harness that and pair it with learning how to refine and redirect that spirit for something bigger, well, then I think we're talking about a citizen for change. Hmm. So we have a high image of the child. And what you're saying right there says, to me, it sounds like you have a specific role. The role of the educator. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, I guess that'll be our next topic. Yeah, good transition there. Stay tuned. Brother Nick. Brother Mike, take care. Man, I appreciate you. Yeah. Like I always say, we have one shot at childhood. We got the Bills, before the Bills, excuse me. Not the Buffalo Bills, go Bills though. Um, (laughs) But before the Bills, before the drama, before everything that life throws at us. I think it's our duty and it's our honor to make sure that this childhood is a joyous joyous one. So until next time, y'all, take care. Take care, everybody.